Hello and welcome to Amplifying the Past, a regular series of conversations on history brought to you by the History Department at Boston University. I'm Benjamin Siegel, a historian of South Asian and transnational history and one of our regular hosts. In each episode of Amplifying the Past, we'll be diving deep into one corner of history and some of the ways we and our colleagues have been working to tell it. And along the way, we'll be introducing you to some of the new ideas that are exciting us, as well as our colleagues elsewhere. I think it's fair to say that law has a little bit of an image problem. Law has an enduring draw for many undergraduate students of history, whether they're seeking to do good, right wrongs, find a footing in government or business, or simply to make money. But at the same time, I'd also venture that the image of the lawyer is in tatters. If you ask a student 50 years ago to call up a fictional lawyer, they'd probably have given you Atticus Finch. And these days, most of my students would probably name Saul Goodman instead. Law is seen as many things, emancipatory, instrumental, lucrative. But most of all, I think it's seen as Byzantine and complicated. And often the model that we have for righteousness in law is one offered by people who seem to have no legal training, but somehow managed to find a voice in a system or systems that are stacked against them, or maybe even too big for them to really comprehend. Someone like an Aaron Brockovich character comes to mind, or even the American archetype of a jailhouse lawyer. My colleague and guest today, Professor Ray Hua, looks in his work at small people caught up in really big legal systems. His setting is the borderland region of Manchuria in Northeast Asia at the turn of the 20th century, as at least three imperial powers, China, Japan, and Russia, maybe also the Americans, made monumental claims about sovereignty, law, and even the whole of the international order. Before this region erupted into war and revolution, individuals within it sought to make claims about what was right and just, claims that were cosmopolitan, drawing liberally and creatively upon great concepts from three legal systems. Professor Hua, in part, is looking at some of those claims and what they tell us about law and its development in the 20th century. But I think that does a disservice to the radical claims that Professor Hua is making about the working of law in the modern world. In his work, which we're going to talk about today, Professor Hua is challenging certain ideas about legal history that felt very settled only a short while ago. Historians of an earlier generation sometimes spoke of international legal cosmopolitanism, the idea, as I understand it, that there was something innate to individual rights and personhood that transcended the short-sightedness or the avarice of the nation-state, and that global legal regimes could be leveraged to ensure their thriving. But that older model of international legal cosmopolitanism wasn't neutral ground. It was European in origin, and it extolled European norms as the universal against which all others might be judged. Professor Hua's turning that on his head in his work, and he's situating the Northeast Asian borderlands as an equally central source of modern international law. As if that intervention weren't quite big enough, Professor Hua is also asking us to look beyond law itself to consider the landscapes in which law was made. Pastoral or agrarian lands, riparian and swampy wetland environments, and indeed parts of the land we can't even see, including soil or the minerals cached in the earth itself. This deep environmental history has equally lasting implications for the way in which we think about law. And in a world poised for renewed conflict over minerals, many of which are still under the ground of contemporary Asian regimes, this is a history that bears down greatly on today's international geopolitics. It's really heady stuff, and I'm excited to dive in today. Professor Rehua, welcome to Amplifying the Past. 
Thank you, Ben. That was such an amazing introduction of my work. I think you know my work better than I do myself. Ray, let's let's start by setting the stage. Much of your work unfolds in a place that many of us could recognize, but probably don't know very well. So tell me first about Manchuria and what makes that borderland region at the turn of the last century so central to your work. Since 1949, Manchuria has been known as the northeastern corner of China. And it's a part of the world that seems somehow banal. It's not very interesting. But then before 1949, in the first half of the 20th century, Manchuria was where the game of great powers happened in all of East Asia. Manchuria was a borderland that sat between at least three empires, and those were the three most powerful political formations in Northeast Asia, China, Japan, and Russia. And in between those, Manchuria was also the playground of ethnic peoples, Koreans, Mongols, the indigenous peoples of Siberia and the Amur region. And all of these peoples, all of these languages were mingling in this gigantic borderland, this liminal space between nation states. And that was why Manchuria was so exciting, because it was sitting on the borders. It was the frontier of all the empires. It was a place which all of these political formations wanted to drag into their own orbit. And yet, the people of Manchuria never allowed that to happen. Before we settle into some of these stories that you'll tell us today and that you've written about in your work, what made Manchuria so interesting to great imperial powers? Was it natural resources? Was it agrarian labor, something else entirely? Each imperial power, or I should say each great state, saw in Manchuria something that's different from the others. The Russian Empire saw in Manchuria an unfrozen port to the Pacific. Japan saw in Manchuria a lifeline for resources, mineral resources, timber resources, land resources. And the Chinese state saw in Manchuria an outlet for its overpopulated North China plains. And so Chinese migrants had been moving across the Great War, first against the wish of the Chinese state, and then under the auspices of the Chinese state to find new agricultural spaces. So it, Manchuria was this marvelous place that meant many different things to many different people. And yet all of their histories intersected in this space. So within this giant imperial Rorschach test, we have an incredible cast of characters who you write about in your work. But I want to start us off today with two farmers who you've written about, Farmer Sun and Farmer Ma. These are rather insignificant Chinese-speaking peasants who found themselves bound up in some very complicated legal regimes and legal questions, along with maybe 30 other farmers who they work nearby. Can you tell our listeners their story and maybe after that or alongside that, how you found their stories? Farmer Ma and Farmer Sun have been my best friends since I found their names in the archives in, I think, the summer of 2018. So I was browsing through random legal papers in, in the Liaoning Provincial Archives in China. And these two names, these two family names, Sun and Ma, kept showing up. These two families kept fighting lawsuits against each other. They were doing this in the early 1900s when the Qin Empire was crumbling. They were doing this in the 1920s when the Chinese Republic was falling apart. And the world was changing around them. And yet, these two families made it their family business to file lawsuits against the other family. So what was going on in this mess? I traced their story from the provincial archives in China to the foreign ministry archives in Japan to the national archives in the U.S., and all the way back to the local archives in China. 
And I found that the object of their lawsuits was nothing ordinary. The object of their lawsuits were two islands in the Yalu River. And the Yalu River was the border river between the Japanese Empire and the Qin Empire. Since Japan annexed Korea, that was the river where the Japanese Empire stopped and where the rest of East Asia started. And these two peasants, these two peasant families, happened to have discovered two islands in the river and occupied them. And oblivious to the fact that these two islands were sitting on the border of the most powerful empire of East Asia, they started planting agricultural produce on the islands as if those islands were their backyard. So the Japanese empire, of course, was disgruntled to find these chores, um people at their doorstep. The Japanese empire wanted to take, to take over these islands. The Chinese state was not happy about this. How can Chinese peasants take over border islands and turn this into their farm? This was not going to happen. So the two great states started their diplomatic negotiation over these islands. And those negotiations were going to take the islands away from the peasants. But the peasants were not going to allow it to happen. They were peasants of the Manchurian borderland. So what they did, and this is, and this is truly amazing is that they opened their own negotiations with representatives of the Japanese empire through the mediation of an American diplomat who had just been stationed in Manchuria. The American diplomat offered to mediate the dispute based on international law. But the farmers told him that this was not going to be the international law of Europe. This was not going to be the international law of America. This was going to be the international law of the peasants' own making. And what they oh. so let me let me just stop you here for a minute before we get further into this story. And I want to understand first of all these peasants from the Sun and Ma family. How did they how did they come to resort to law? How did they know about courts? How did they find standing in this case? And then how did they think to appeal to an American to mediate? Law was this popular thing that was in the vogue in Manchuria at the time. The Chinese empire, the Qing empire had brought law to Manchuria. It brought a legal regime to um, settle the land, the land rights and the, the chaos around land rights in the region. The Japanese empire brought in its own legal regime in its colonization process. The Russian empire introduced its own legal system. And all of these legal systems came with a mechanism of its own dissemination. The Japanese and the Russians set up so-called rapid law schools. What were rapid law schools? You can get a JD in six months rather than three years. And some of our peasant characters, I call them peasant intellectuals, may have attended these law schools or otherwise read pamphlets about law. The Russian railway company published a newspaper in Chinese in which there was a section devoted to legal poetry. These were poems in vernacular Chinese, which discussed legal problems. How do you even write such poems? How do you even make them rhyme? I have no idea. But that was what was happening in that unique corner of the world in the first decades of the 20th century. And so our farmers, our peasants, they were incredibly literate in the world of law. And because all of these legal resources coming from all of these legal worlds, they intersected and sedimented in the borderland. So all of this became part of the legal arsenal of these peasants. So that is my theory about how they became so proficient in law. The American, I have no idea. This American consul, he was particularly active in Andong, which is on the Chinese side of the Yalu border, Yalu River 
border in Manchuria. He was posted there. He was bored. He was doing two things. One, trying to sell American refrigerators. That was not going very well. Nobody was buying American refrigerators. Two, using his haphazard legal knowledge to, to mediate between private land disputes between Japanese, Korean, and Chinese settlers. We have no idea why he got into this business, but one can only assume because of this compatibility between the American way of thinking about law and this fortuitous legal consciousness that took shape in Manchuria. This was how the Americans and the Manchurians spoke to each other. So then tell me how this, how these, how these disputes played out. The Chinese peasants go to the Japanese. They propose a deal. The deal involved a Manchu customary practice, a Manchuria was the homeland of the Manchus, and the Manchus were the founders of China's last imperial dynasty, the Qin dynasty. So the Qin government in Beijing prohibited Han Chinese migrants from buying land in Manchuria. You don't want Han Chinese migrants to own land in your Manchu homeland. The Manchus had their own calculation. If things go haywire in China proper, we could still go back to our homeland and we could launch another imperial enterprise from there. So no Chinese migrants, no land rights. Um, Chinese migrants wanted to buy land anyway, so they invented a legal device in which the Chinese migrants would pay a Manchu person to serve as their nominal landlord to perform function before the Qin state. And then the Han Chinese migrant would, in fact, work on the land, use the land, and profit from the land. So in modern legal parlance, these Han Chinese migrants through this unique inter-ethnic legal device, created a regime of usufruct land rights in Manchuria. How is this related to our case on the Yabu River? The Han Chinese peasants proposed the same rights structure to the Japanese. Essentially, the Han Chinese peasants proposed that they would make a Korean entity, their landlord, and they would pay rent to the Japanese empire. And the Japanese empire would then recognize their usufruct right, the usufruct right of the Chinese peasants over these islands. And in this, the Chinese government would then acquiesce in the deal. This, this unique structure satisfied all parties. The Japanese empire could imagine that they now have established sovereignty over these islands, which they actually did not. The Koreans were happy because they were now involved. They have a stake. The Chinese state was also happy because the issue of sovereignty, the very consequential issue of who actually, which state actually owned this island was then postponed. The can was kicked down the road. And then the Chinese peasants were happy because they actually established usufruct rights over the islands and could continue to profit from their agricultural enterprise. So a case that started with the invocation of international law ended in a place where the peasants used a private customary legal device to resolve, or at least to postpone, the eruption of an international relations hotspot. James Scott tells us that states want to simplify things. States want to make things legible. And in this case, the Japanese empire and the Chinese state had one shared desire, and that is to make the dispute over this complex land rights structure legible to the states to use the state's legal language to describe what is going on on the ground. And that was, that I think was what gave the peasants their opportunity to manipulate the system because they knew what the states 
They knew the language that the states spoke. They also had their own vernacular legal language. And it was them who injected this vernacular legal language into these formal legal processes of the state. And through that process, they were able to establish a vernacular rights structure that was nevertheless nested in the formal legal institutions of the state. When we tell stories about law in Boston or in New York or in London, we have certain traditions of common law or case law. And when we think about certain models of liberalism and law, they locate us in Europe instead. You're asking us to consider a very different origin story. In a state legal system, law is what the state says is law. The Congress, through its acts, make law. A lawyer cannot claim to be making a law in the courtroom, the lawyer will be disbarred instantly. In a civil, sorry, in a common law system, there is case law, but those case law are what the judges say is the law. In this case, in the Manchurian borderland, what is different is that there was not one single state or a single group of judges to tell the peasants what the law is. And so at the interstices of all of these states, at a place where there is a density of state legal infrastructure, but an absolute legal authority. These peasants started making laws themselves, but they, they were smart enough. They were not simply issuing legal texts themselves. That would be forgery. That was not how law was made. Those peasants were pitting one legal system against another. They were seeing the spaces where legal systems overshadowed each other, and they were operating in the shadows of these imperial laws. I wonder if I can ask you a bit more about the particularities of the space and take us into some of your newer work. Usually, if we ask a historian to do that, it's really the matter of a couple decades, maybe a century or two. In your case, I think we should move back a bit earlier to the origins of our own galaxy, where you begin a wonderful new article that asks us to situate our understandings of law and property alongside the deep history of those same Northeast Asian borderlands. And once again, here, in addition to this big conceptual ask that you are making of us, you have us focus on another Chinese farmer and a Japanese merchant and another set of imperial courts. We may not have time to go into all of that case today, but maybe you could tell me a bit about magnesium. Magnesium is the actor in some of your new work. And could you tell us about how its formation in the early cosmos structured the kind of lawmaking that you talk about in that first century of the Anthropocene? My big ambition for my second project, which you just described, is to unite environmental history and legal history to show how laws, some of the most anthropocentric of normative orders, also had an environmental depth to it. In other words, how human empires, powerful as they may seem, were in fact the floating super, the floating froth above the rocks, the terrains, the minerals, the environment, millions of years in the making. That is what I'm trying to do. So magnesium, yes, magnesium is the entry point to my new project. And I came to magnesium because we have known for some time that Japan, China, and Russia were fighting for Manchuria because of the abundance of mineral resources there. In the first two decades of the 20th century, all of these great states were trying to expand state sovereignty by promulgating new mining laws. And they had in mind a particular set of minerals, coal, iron, gold, silver. Those are the things that the great states wanted. Those are the things in which they invested. 
But then I went into the archives and I found that the greatest number of disputes over mining rights were not happening over coal, iron, gold, or silver. They happened over two minerals, talc and magnesite. What is talc? What is magnesite? Why do people even fight over these things? Talc, talc and magnesite were both magnesium-based minerals. Was good for two purposes: making white paper and making white cosmetics. Because talc has this property, its、uh, its whiteness stands out in the world of minerals. Magnesite is a、um, a mineral that happens together with talc and is useful for the making of bricks. And these were the two minerals that were structuring the legal economy of the Liaodong Peninsula or the southern part of Manchuria in the first two decades of the 20th century. Because peasants, farmers, Japanese investors, Korean miners—they were all filing lawsuits against each other over these minerals. And so, and these lawsuits had one very important effect, and that is they disrupted the state's. Legislative attempt to expand state sovereignty over the minerals. How did that happen? So, the state laws used one device or one legal construction to expand state sovereignty, and that is to separate surface land rights from underground mining rights. Before 1907, before the promulgation of the first Qin mining law, Chinese landowners customarily owned everything to the center of the earth. They owned the minerals under their land. From 1907, Chinese and Japanese mining laws cancelled that right. These mining laws said, as a surface landowner, you only owned the land on the surface. Everything beneath the surface was now the property of the state. Landowners or anybody else would have to apply for a per- permit from the state in order to mine under their own land. But then I went back to these lawsuits over talcum magnesite, and that was not what was happening. The landowners, in particular small landowners, continued to have enormous influence in the mining process, despite what the law said. These people continued to use these mining laws to to justify their own agency and their own ability to profit from the minerals under their land. And why was that? Wouldn't there be an easy way? For mining investors to get around all of these problems of surface land rights, there is actually one very simple way that miners could get around land rights, and that is to mine from the underground. If you dig a tunnel from just tiny one tiny patch of land, you dig and you dig and you dig through everybody's land. Since the mining law says those surface land owners did not own anything beneath the surface, they would have they would be able to do nothing about this. In fact, this was. The, the the pretense which Saddam Hussein used in 1991 to invade Kuwait, but then in talcum magnesite mining, mining investors from Japan were not doing that. They prefer to deal with small land owners to collaborate with them to give them a share, a stake in the mining business, and that was the source of many of these disputes. And that. Flight in the face of all the mining laws from China and Japan, because essentially that. Reverse the trend of separating la- the land regime from the mining regime and united the regime all over again. Minerals connect the biosphere to the lithosphere of the earth. This is environmental history, but much of environmental history happens on the surface of the earth. It happens in the biosphere. It tells the story of how weeds, agricultural produce, bird waste, animals. 
shaped human history, and in particular, how these biological factors, biogeographical factors, as Al- Alfred Crosby put it, enabled European imperialism. My story, the story that I'm hoping to tell, is different in two ways. First, I'm thinking of minerals and geology not necessarily as an ally of imperialism. I do not want to tell another story of the success of colonialism. Explain its success. Explain how it domesticated the things of the nature and put those things into its service. I want to tell the opposite story: how the deep structures of the earth turned empires into the froth of rocks. How the environment. Was more powerful than humans, and how we should be humble, despite the power that the Anthropocene has given us over our planet and even the outer space. How we should remain humble to the ground on which we stand. In other words, how the environment it still encompasses all of these things that made the empires what they seem to be. I wanted to ask you, with the time that we had left, about language, since you work with really great skill across Chinese, Japanese, Russian, English, and as I understand it, some Korean. A few months ago, I, I read a, a an improbably funny amicus brief filed by an editor for the Onion in support of a case on the right to parody that was going to the Supreme Court. That brief was intentionally very hilarious, but it underscored the truism that writing about law is dense, dreary, unpleasant to get through, difficult. I wanted to ask you how it feels to read legal texts and petitions in different languages, since I think you're one of a very small number of people who do this particular set. Are there differences in reading legal thinking, vernacular legal thinking across languages? And to be provocative yet again, is there a best language in which to think about law? Studying law across languages leads you to see very different modus operandi of law. And it leads you to see how much of human thinking is mediated through law in East Asian legal regimes. Rights generally do not have a dimension in time. In Russia, it does. And this legal, epistemo- legal epistemology is very different. And this is totally speculative. But the Russian language is known for its, manipul- for its playing with time. It has. Declensions that it has conjugations, and all of this has to do with time. How do different people think about time through the medium of their different languages, and how is that projected onto the way they think of law? When I think about your scholarship, it's hard not to think about some of the very politically charged conversations between European and American thinkers on the one hand, and certain strands of Chinese political thought on the other. One strand for Chinese officials has been to levy this charge that rights-based discourses are fundamentally a European imposition. They are somehow non-Chinese or maybe even non-Asian, and that charge may, in fact, have some basis in fact. On the other hand, it also seems reductive to cast different types of rights thinking as antithetical towards a particular geographic context. I wondered if I could ask you to reflect on some of the bigger shifts that you're affecting on the historiography of legal pluralism, and then maybe some of the political implications of the Asia-centered legal cosmopolitanism that you're recovering through your work. That is a very thoughtful question.、Um, so the 
rights discourse and the discourse about the divergence of the meaning of rights between Asian, European, and other cultural spheres has been evoked for a while. And what Manchuria shows is that humanity has some kind of a common cosmopolitan ability to understand rights and obligations. I was talking about the differences between the Russian, Japanese, and Chinese legal texts, but there is one thing that goes through all of them, and that is a respect for property rights, a respect for contractual obligations. The idea of a contract, in particular, was a thread that traveled from St. Petersburg to Tokyo to Beijing to the Manchurian borderland, and this. It emerged from this transnational travel and all the turmoil unscathed, and everybody was talking the same language, and that was what gave imperial actors and non-state actors the ability to converse across linguistic and cultural boundaries. You show a piece of contract written in the Chinese language to a Russian judge; the Russian judge would respect that. You you take out a right from the Japanese legal text; you make an argument based on that right. A Chinese judge would buy that. And that is how people from different countries, people from different cultures, could have a conversation. So I think the idea that somehow Asian people have a whole different understanding of right, or somehow the Asian people do not have a rights consciousness, that is detrimental to our ability to be open, to be cosmopolitan, and to embrace each other. Ray, before we break, we wanted you to recommend to our listeners something that wasn't a work of history—a book, a documentary, an album—for someone who's thinking in the same world as your work and wants to go a little bit further. I would recommend poetry. How do you understand the way the Chinese people organized their emotions? How do you understand the way the people of East Asia structured? Their sentiments and sensibilities. You look at the rhymed lines that they write. You look at the way they describe their world in a un, in a non-analytical way, and that is poetry. And very Professor Stephen Owen at Harvard completed the translation of the entire collection of poetry by Du Fu, one of the most important Chinese poets in the Tang. And I would highly recommend that. To anyone who wants to appreciate the true beauty of the Chinese world, we'll leave a reference to that in the show notes. And a question that we'd like to leave our guests with: How did your own story, where you grew up, the people who were early influences on you, lead you to do the kind of work that、um, you do that, today? That is, I grew up in China in the 1990s and in the early 2000s. We think of China, we think of China as a place of a collective mind. We think of China as a place where there is a great pressure to conform to social norms. That was not the China I knew from the 1990s. That China, having emerged unscathed from the political trauma of the Cultural Revolution, was a China of individuals, of idealistic individuals determined to make the most out of their lives. It was a place of great creativity. It was a place where people would just come up with an idea and go about to great lengths. To make it reality, there was this figure. He was not my role model. He eventually went to prison. Who heard upon the collapse of the Soviet Union that the Soviets had a surplus of airplanes but needed canned food? He was a nobody. He had no money. He simply brokered a deal to trade canned food from China for airplanes from the Soviet Union. He brought to China four Soviet 
airplanes and sold those, those airplanes to a Chinese state-owned airlines and became a millionaire, if not a billionaire, right out of this deal. Those airplanes continue to fly into the 21st century. And in, in the end, this guy, having a broker too many illegal deals, ended up in prison and was recently released. But this kind of outburst of creativity, legal and illegal, normative or otherwise, shaped my world, a world of openness, a, wor- a world of unbounded, and in some cases, unhinged creativity. And I saw that in the small characters, in the farmers, in the peasants that I studied a hundred years from my world. And it's, it's the same world. It's a world I miss. It's a world that I want to create. And it's not the world I know today. So that is, I suppose, how my, my life story shaped the story of the lives of the people that I'm writing about. Thanks very much, Professor Rehua. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you, Ben. These are such, such intriguing questions. You are going to keep me thinking for the rest of the new semester. That's all for this episode of Amplifying the Past. For questions, comments, or show suggestions, please send us an email at history at bu.edu. Find us on Twitter at, at historybu, or DM us on Instagram at, at bu underscore history. Please take the time to subscribe to Amplifying the Past via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else finer podcasts are found and downloaded. If you enjoyed the show, please take the time to leave a review or recommend us to a friend. Thanks again to Ray Hua for joining us today. Amplifying the Past is a production of the Department of History at Boston University. I'm Benjamin Siegel, and please join us next time for more conversations in history.